There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, welcome to Hollywood Crime Scene. This is Rachel Fisher. Hi, this is Desi Jadikin. Was that like too little girl? <laughs> it was so tiny. It was uh, so cute. Yeah, I'm tired. So... Yeah, we're delayed. We had some construction near our recording studio, aka Rachel's place, <laughs> yeah. yesterday. So we we couldn't record. We couldn't record, and we're very sorry. But we're here today, post workout. Yeah, tired. We we literally were bench pressing before we yeah sat down. Absolutely. So. Do you want to start off by thanking our patrons? Yes, we have a Patreon. You can find that at patreon.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. And there we have ad-free episodes. We also have bonus episodes up on Patreon, movie recaps, lots of fun stuff there. And it's very easy to get all of those episodes dropped into your main feed wherever you listen to your podcasts. Yeah. So this week we had Heidi Kristen, Courtney, Emily, Janelle, Shandell, Stephanie, Sarah, KTCV, Kiara, Jay, Laura, Emma, Coco, Charlorne, Molly, Carrie, Winnie, Mary, Evan, Margaret, Ray, Lucius, Matthew, Emily, Jen, Megan, Elizabeth, Jamie, Ethan, Saskia, Kaylee, Emily, Brianna, Andrea, Jessica, Kelly, Alicia, Amber, Katie, and Sarah. Thank you all very much. Thanks, guys. Okay, so we have another TV versus reality for you today. And this one is also related to American Horror Story. This time, it is the first season of the horror anthology Murder House. Did you see this? No. It's one of the better ones, in my opinion. Wait, this was the first? Mm Mm-hmm one they ever did this is the first one so if you didn't watch this season involves the story of a doctor named charles montgomery who once lived in the house and performed illegal abortions in the basement during the 1920s one of his patients tells her boyfriend about the abortion and the boyfriend is furious so much so that he decides he will kidnap the montgomery son thaddeus taking from them what they took from him He kills and dismembers the child and returns the pieces to the doctor in jars. Jesus Christ. Dr. Montgomery loses his mind with grief, attempts to bring his son back to life by sewing him together again, and it works. Then Nora, his wife, tries to nurse the reanimated Thaddeus, and it bites her to quench its bloodthirst. I won't get into all of it, but let's just say it doesn't ever die and lives in the basement, quenching its bloodlust for years to come. This creature or ex-son <laughs> becomes known as the infantata so he's sort of the monster of this season and it's very creepy yeah as you can imagine 
Now, this story is actually inspired by one of history's most infamous crimes, and that is the Lindbergh baby kidnapping. This was a national crisis uh, because at the time, Charles Lindbergh was one of the most famous people in the world. And this is back in the day when there was like, you know, 10 famous people. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. like now. So if you were famous, everyone knew you. Yeah. So this would eventually lead to the original trial of the century and has inspired other media, including the very good crime of the century starring Stephen Rea. So to this day, this case is still a very popular topic on Reddit uh, and other message boards because it involves what many to believe an unjust conviction. And there are numerous other conspiracy theories about what really happened. It's just one of those cases where everyone kind of has their input, uh, including one that is presented in my main source for these episodes. Yes, this is a two-parter. The Lindbergh kidnapping suspect number one, the man who got away by crime writer Lisa Perlman. It's L-I-S-E. Is that Lisa? Lisa. (laughs) Yeah, not like Lisa. So just clarifying that. So let's get started. On the night of March 1st, 1932, around 10 p.m., nurse Betty Gow went to the room of her 19-month-old charge, Charles Augustus Lindbergh Jr., to wake him up for his nighttime routine, which included a snack and a diaper change. Betty had worked for the famous family for about a year and had really settled into a well-established routine. When she put him to bed at 7.30 p.m., everything was business as usual. When she returned to the nursery, it was dark in the room. She was surprised to not hear the child breathing and started feeling around the crib. Nothing. She immediately went to Mother Anne to see if she had the child, and she said she didn't, but perhaps the colonel, which is what Charles Lindbergh Sr. was called sometimes, uh, maybe he had him. Betty went down and found Charles Sr. reading in the, the study, No Baby. He immediately bounds up the stairs to the nursery, and Anne is in shock to see him. Sure, he had taken the baby, but seeing him there with Charles Jr. nowhere in sight confirmed her worst fears. Charles went and grabbed a rifle, yelling to Anne, they've stolen our baby. Everyone, including several other staff members, immediately began searching in and outside of the house just in case he had somehow gotten out of his crib and hidden something he had done before. After 15 minutes, the devastating reality truly sunk in. The baby was gone. They called the local police, and almost immediately, the news went out over the wire. Colonel Lindbergh's baby was kidnapped from Lindbergh's home in Hopewell, New Jersey, sometime between 7.30 p.m. and 10 p.m., this date. Baby is 19 months old, and a boy is dressed in sleeping suit, requests that all cars be investigated by police patrol. Absolute chaos ensues as this news breaks. The most famous baby in the world was now missing. So I'm going to give you a little background on Charles Lindbergh. This is not at all extensive. It's going to just be the context we need to discuss the kidnapping. Who is he? I feel like we all know who he is, right? We all know like four pilots, the Wright brothers, Charles Lindbergh, Sully, Sully. Oh, the guy. The, yeah, the guy who landed the plane. Yes. Snoopy. Snoopy's like, yeah. <laughs> That's like, you know, we all know the same four or five pilots. Same famous pilots. Famous pilots. So we're going to get into a little bit of his background. Um, he is born on February 4th, 1902, to a Swedish immigrant dad. 
and an American mother, he basically grew up on a Minnesota farm until his father became a congressman, and then he would spend a lot of time in D.C. and kind of go back and forth between his parents who eventually get divorced. His childhood had some very specific traumas that, according to him, molded him uh, as an adult, especially when it came to his parenting style. The first one was that his dad would put him on his back and swim across the Mississippi River. Uh, and these are very swift currents that they were going through. One day, Charles fell off into the rushing river and his dad just continued swimming to shore, watching to see if his son would literally sink or swim. Like, <laughs> like literally. What's wrong with this guy? Uh, and he started going under and the dad did not help him and he had to thrash his way to safety uh, and get himself to the shore. He's like, five years old during this like very young that same summer his entire house burns down and he like watches him he watches everything he had all of his toys are burned and incinerated and then that just sets off this series of um problems his family has financially so he's really molded in this tough swedish upbringing according to the dad that is like the sink or swim mantra just resonates through all of these parenting acts of him growing up and he also says that he was firmly um, grounded in nature and science and that also was something that defined who he was early on he takes an interest in motorized transportation and when he is in college he studies mechanical engineering and quickly becomes obsessed with flying machines mm. planes <laughs> Airplane. <laughs> That's what they used to call them. I know. Flying machines. In February, he actually quits colleges and enrolls in the Nebraska Aircraft Corporation's flying school in Lincoln, Nebraska, and begins sort of learning how to fly. He eventually flies in the Army Reserves and then becomes an airmail pilot. But engineering and the mechanics of it all was still his first love. And in mid-February 1927, he leaves for San Diego, California to oversee the design and construction of a plane called the Spirit of St. Louis. Now, this is like early days where they're, everyone's setting records. So right. two British pilots had completed a transatlantic uh, flight from Newfoundland to Galway. Um, a prize was created uh, for the first person who did this flight from New York City to Paris, which was a more difficult flight. Uh, and this prize would be $25,000 to the first guy who did it, or woman. We forgot Amelia Earhart on your list of famous. Oh, right. She's very famous. We're very sorry. Uh, look, we all know her. We all know and love her. Yeah. I read many bios on her when I was a child. <laughs> um no attempts were made in the first five years. That's how difficult this flight was considered. And when attempts were eventually made by very experienced pilots, they were unsuccessful, including one pair who disappeared over the Atlantic. That's got to be fucking scary as hell. Yeah. Don't you think? Um, now, Lindbergh at this time is nobody. No one knows who this guy is. He was kind of famous for barnstorming. What's like, that? Is that where you fly the plane out of the barn? I think it's like when you go down really low too, right? I don't know why. I'm just picturing these like old biplanes. Yeah, because that's the type of planes we're talking about. Like going over the Atlantic Ocean and one of those like red, like remember Snoopy had that enemy? What was his name? The Red Baron or whatever. Yeah, the Red Baron. Yeah, and they had like the completely open cockpit. No, thanks. I'm not doing that with my little scarf no. flying in the wind and no. my goggles. No. Um, so yeah, you had to wear that leather hat. <laughs> You got to get the leather hat and the goggles. Right. You have to wear those jodhpur pants. Those jo 
So he manages to get $18,000 to finish his plane. Uh, and this is like way less than any of the more famous pilots are getting uh, to compete in this competition. He begins test flights and shortly after, he flew to Roosevelt Field, Long Island. This is where my mall was growing up <gasps> at Roosevelt Field. Desi. I remember going there and being like, finding out this information. I was like, whoa, this is where he took off. This is a mall. <laughs> but there's also a huge parking lot, I guess. Where I mean, it wasn't a mall then. <laughs> it was actually an airport, I guess. That's a historical wet seal. Yeah, exactly. And they had a flea market there too. That's my memory. But yeah, so I know exactly where Roosevelt Field is. On Friday, May 20th, 1927, he took off for Paris. Now he's flying pretty low initially because he's kind of going up the coast and the newspapers and news services are literally tracking every move. People are, you know, things are getting reported. Like he just flew over St. John's at 8.15 p.m. Like they can literally see him flying and it's like this huge fucking deal. Uh, the flight sounds truly harrowing. Things like ice forming in on outside the plane and him literally having to reach his hand off to like scrape it off. No. And his hand being like stabbed with a million cold ice. Do you know what I mean? Like shatters and just the freezing fucking cold. Um, he would uh, literally fall asleep sometimes for like a minute and wake up <laughs> and like be like in, in complete fucking fog. Uh, this flight took like 33 hours. How, he was, how fast was he going? I think like 125 miles an hour. That's too slow. Well, that's all they could do. He <laughs> couldn't like pass on the gas. <laughs> But can you imagine being up for that long fucking flying over the middle of the ocean? That's no thanks. This is like, I could never have existed where things were being done for the first time. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's too scary. Like this level of things. Yes. Where you're just like, I could never come back. That's very likely. I could just fall. So after 27 hours, he sees porpoises and fishing boats, which is a sign that he is nearing land. He is soon flying over Ireland. And upon reaching Paris, he circles the Eiffel Tower before approaching the airfield. So he's a real showman. That would be super embarrassing if he like crashed into the Eiffel if Tower. If he crashed into it or something, or if he like yeah. fell right at that right when he got there. Yeah, you gotta land the ending. You gotta land the Because no one's gonna be like, well, he made it really far. No, they're gonna just remember you crashed into the Eiffel Tower and and trying to be cool. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so he lands at ten twenty two, May twenty first. Tens of thousands of spectators are caught in the largest traffic jam in Paris history, trying to get to this airfield and watch him land. A crowd around 150,000 people storm the field and drag him out of the cockpit, carrying him over their heads and singing for he's a jolly good fellow. Now I added that part. You added this, that. This happens for like an hour, though. They're like literally carrying him around this field. Among the crowd were two future Indian prime ministers, Jawaharlal Nehru and Indira Gandhi. They're like at this event as well. According to his biographer, A. Scott Burke, people were behaving as though Lindbergh had walked on water, not flown over it. That's the level he was at. And what year is this again? 27. So the New York Times headline is page wide. Lindbergh does it. He becomes an international celebrity. And he is the first time man of the year beating out Babe Ruth. So that's the level of fame he has at this point. Um, another uh, report from his biography, in an age of hedonistic materialism, he had shown courage and self-denial of a high order. 
in an age of corporations and committees, he acted alone. So he was really seen as this hero uh, for sure. Now, fans wanted every morsel of information they could get on him, and he didn't like it. He was very shy and private, hiding a lot of family uh, scandals, including the fact that his parents were divorced, his dad was born out of wedlock, and there were a lot of financial scandals involving his grandfather. I mean, nothing major, but he uh, didn't want it to get out. In addition to becoming a national hero, he was also the world's most eligible bachelor at this point. Another secret, he's 25. He had never dated. He was a virgin. What so a he, dork. <laughs> total, total loser. No, just kidding. Look, it's perfectly fine, but he is very socially awkward. Um, and he really wasn't prepared to be in the spotlight. He would spit on camera. He would wipe his nose on his sleeve. He's just He's gross. And that's the kind of stuff that can ruin even the hottest guy. Yeah. Because he's uh, pretty handsome. Like for that, you know, they have that look back then. (laughs) It's like (laughs) handsome for the olden days or something. Because their looks kind of like whatever. It's not what we're used to seeing. But he's really tall. He's um, blonde, blue eyed, that kind of guy. So, yeah, but he's gross. Harry Guggenheim actually takes him under his wing because he's like, you can't act like this in public. Like, you could be great. He pairs him with his own personal attorney, Henry Breckenridge, for business matters. And uh, this guy's also very connected. With his help, uh, Lindbergh receives the first Medal of Honor given to a civilian and lands over $5 million in endorsements back then. Wow. So this is crazy. He's also offered a starring role opposite Marion Davies, which what? he he takes he takes the offer and then resends it because his lawyer's like you'll regret this you can't act no you're gonna look like a fucking idiot now when he does finally begin looking for a wife we get some early glimpses of what is widely known now but not really talked about when we were kids I don't remember at least that he is an infamous white supremacist yes like in the most old school way like he's a eugenicist yes so. And considering the fact that at the time, he's pretty much considered what what would be like the Aryan ideal, tall, blonde, blue eyed, that type of deal. He even receives a certificate from the Minnesota Eugenics Society, quote, in recognition of his superior hereditary endowments. Gross. So he feels that he has a special obligation to pass on his acclaimed genes to help perpetuate the most advanced race of people. Uh, and eugenics is really big at this time. It's uh, especially big in the aristocratic set, like the rich people um, and people who are all like Western civilization. This is like a this is like a telltale sign someone's a piece of shit these days when they talk about Western civilization. Yeah, <laughs> you're always yeah. kind of like, okay, what's, I know where you're coming from what's here. What's the sub? What's the subtext here? Yes, and they're they're like profile pic is like a statue of Plato or something yeah it's always (laughs) it's just a okay we know we know what's going on here so yeah I mean this is just very popular even someone like Margaret Sanger this is also something sort of more talked about today a birth control was considered something to, to do to stop people from having kids who they didn't consider worthy right I mean, obviously it had a a positive use as well, but yeah. So his superior hereditary endowments uh, didn't extend themselves to his social abilities because he could not get a girlfriend. 
uh, despite his looks and his uh, superior genes, quote unquote. Doesn't sound very superior to me. And no, he wasn't. And since he really can't even get his dick wet. (laughs) Seriously, that's the that's the first sign. Maybe you should look (laughs) inward, Charles. (laughs) Charles. It's you know what it is. It's like this this movement coincided with his massive ignorance and ego yeah to create because it's like yeah he's like yeah I fit this exact description I'm gonna believe it (laughs) it's true because I actually am very dumb now (laughs) (laughs) so he really bought this shit that he was superior so he's looking for a woman like he's looking for a show pony someone from good sturdy stock who's ready to breed so uh I mean, I did mention this is the heyday of eugenics. There's even government policies with regards to immigration, things like obviously limiting people of color, but also, uh, quote, Hebrews, Slavs, and Catholics as well. So it was like they had a real hierarchy going on uh, in immigration. There were laws to forcefully sterilize um, people that were deemed unfit to procreate. Um, So, yeah, this is all I'm mentioning all of this because, first of all, it's very interesting and if you were interested, you should read more into it. I'm not going to get go deep, but it is relevant to our story. Yes. So I wanted to hit on it a bit. Uh, so yeah. Through Guggenheim, Lindbergh meets Dwight Morrow, and he inter- introduces Lindbergh to his daughter, Anne. She's like immediately infatuated, and he's like, meh. He was far more interested in her older sister, Elizabeth, who was pretty tall and blonde. But Anne eventually wins him over by learning how to fly and constantly flying with him, no matter how dangerous, even learning how to parachute from an airplane. A real pick-me bitch. She's a pick-me girl. Uh, so I won't even go on The Bachelor because I won't bungee jump <laughs> right. to prove my love. She's learning I'm not how that to I, fly. Not, not <laughs> that I'm invited on The Bachelor, but don't even bother asking producers. <laughs> I'm too old, first of all. I'm not going in a hot tub all the time. <laughs> And I'm not bungee jumping. <laughs> this is why I think you're the perfect candidate for The Bachelor. Hey, look, if you ever want to get real and have a really great season, I'm your girl. But I probably won't pick anybody. Now, <laughs> I'll, I'll end it on a feminist note and be like, I'm happy being single. And everyone will cheer. That's my fantasy. And I fucked one of the other girls. I fucked, and she, I bungee jumped for her while she was eating my pussy. <laughs> We, we bungee jumped in 69 position. <laughs> <laughs> That's how cool Greatest I am. Greatest bachelor season of all time. So now another reason Anne is eventually chosen over Elizabeth. Elizabeth has chronic bouts of pneumonia and Charles needed sturdier stock than Elizabeth. So Anne never got sick. I mean, she's like 19. So who knows what's going to come later. But at this point, she's sturdy stock. Now, of course, this is all ridiculous because like any family, the Moros had their fair share of health issues, including the fact that Dwight is like a massive alcoholic. The dad. The dad. And like there's other things as well. But it's just kind of like Charles was definitely willing to overlook some of these things because his laziness overrode his racism. He was just sick of carrying on courtships. And he's like, let's just stick with this one. Ignore all the other shit. And it's time to breed. Very quickly, Anne is under Charles's thumb, never answering any questions from the press, including about a flight that they barely survived. They had a really bad plane crash. I think it was New Mexico. She's forbidden to say anything negative about aviation, but later in life, she would say this crash was so harrowing that at the time, she vowed to never fly again after it. But of course, she had no choice because she's married to the most famous pilot in the world, and he's still trying to like break records and stuff like this, and he flies all the time. 
He even tells her she's not allowed to write her feelings in her diary. Like, that's how controlling this guy is. Her parents said shortly after the engagement, uh, quote, he has her and we have lost her. They very quickly realized this guy is a fucking weirdo asshole. Yeah. Uh, but it was too late. On May 27th, 1929, they are married and become America's royal couple, basically. Anne is quickly pregnant and despite her fears, still flying with Charles, even going on a cross-country trip while seven months pregnant. Now, on this flight, Charles did not pack oxygen. <gasps> so she was sick the whole time, probably from inhaling carbon monoxide and other chemicals for this cross-country flight. So that's a lot of fucking hours back then, especially. She's also freezing and basically in misery. She has to get off the, the plane while crowds of people and reporters are there and maintain a cheerful disposition while acting thrilled that he had broken another record while she's literally fucking sick to her stomach yeah and just not well on june 22nd 1930 charles augustus Lindbergh jr is born at home once again at charles's uh request because he wants to control the situation and maintain privacy now, Charles is so private about not leaking any information to the press about his newborn that people began to speculate that the baby possibly had some kind of congenital issues. Everyone was very interested in any info they could get on little Lindy, and Charles was adamant they got nothing. And part of the reason for this is that those rumors are true. Uh, although not formally diagnosed yet, baby Charles had something called rickets. This is a softening and weakening of bones in children, and it's usually due to inadequate vitamin D. This is treatable, but we're also talking about a eugenicist who thinks he's superior stock. So something like this to him is very humiliating, that his child was not also like a perfect whatever, his version of what perfect would be. Right. Adding to this um, was some other issues that were indicated uh sort of just people have indicated that this is probably what he had, even though he was never formally diagnosed with this. Uh, and this is like so, some of the stuff adding to this is that he went to the pediatrician a ton, uh, even for a newborn baby who do go frequently. And there's no records that were ever found about his visits to the pediatrician. So it was like people were hiding something. Um, and the other thing that people think he possibly had was he, that he suffered from hydrocephalus. Now this is um, like swelling of the brain. Uh, a lot of a lot of children, especially babies who have this, will have like a larger than average uh, head size. So that's some of the pictures he has this. Um, and while this can be inherited, hydrocephalus also can be caused by traumatic events in utero, including oxygen deprivation <gasps> suffered at high altitudes and carbon monoxide poisoning. Fuck. So it is likely that. This was directly caused by Charles's own arrogance and ego forcing Anne on this flight, in particular that cross-country one. Now, Anne obviously doted on her child, and Charles just seemed very indifferent, which was honestly better than what it evolved into, which was downright cruelty on his part. Hyper-aware of any developmental delays that Charles Jr. was suffering or anything out of the ordinary, he began obsessively testing the baby's like memory and motor skills. He would put him in dangerous situations like leaving him in the tub to see if he would sink or swim like he had suffered as a child. Um, perhaps the cruelest thing that he did was a time when Will Rogers was visiting, another famous pilot 
someone who flew. Um, but not, he did other things. Whenever the child would get up to walk, Charles would throw something at him and knock him to the ground. Oh my God. Uh, Rogers would later say, I asked Lindy if he was rehearsing him for forced landings. After about the fourth time of being knocked over, he did the cutest thing. He dropped of his own accord when he saw the object coming at him. That's horrible. Isn't that the saddest thing? Now, speculation is he did this so no one would notice he had an unusual gait due to the rickets. So he would knock him down before anyone noticed that he uh, was dealing with something. I did not learn anything about this (laughs) I mean, I knew he was a Nazi sympathizer and a white supremacist. Right, because that I, evolves into like an isolationist, which is usually code for like whatever. Yeah, but yeah. I, I learned that. I, I didn't learn that in school. I learned that later, but I didn't even know. I didn't know this stuff until no, today. No, I mean, this, this made me fucking cry almost. This poor little baby, like recognizing what was going to happen. He just sounds like all around. He's like 360 piece of shit. It's like he's broken. And never was fixed, right? Because this is someone who has, uh, he's a sociopath. Yeah. Like, there's something about him that's not turned on. Uh, So a week after this incident, uh, Charles Jr. does formally get diagnosed with rickets. Um, And Charles also at this time has Anne cut his long blonde curls, which he thinks make him him look like a, quote, sissy. Uh, Because Charles had these very golden lock like curls like very fucking cute anyone today would be like this would be the kid that had them down to their shoulders do you know what I mean because their hair is so gorgeous like my youngest brother yes like that's something everyone loves nowadays but it's like yeah this guy's a piece of shit through and through now as the depression begins more news stories start popping up about kidnapping and ransom attempts on the children of wealthy people two a day since 1929 which is a lot. The Lindberghs moved to a farmhouse outside of Princeton, New Jersey to hopefully get away from the spotlight of the big city and decrease the danger of this. It was here that they hired their private nurse, Betty Gow, and began uh, implementing this new schedule that was recommended by a prominent pediatrician they went to. This included a strict feeding schedule and a 10 p.m. wake up to change the diaper and to have a snack in order to ensure that the baby or toddler would sleep until morning. This detail will later be one of the many reasons that people believe the kidnapper knew about this unusual 10 p.m. wake-up time, and therefore the kidnapping was an inside job. So we'll take a break here and get back into it. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm the queen of starting a free trial offer and forgetting to cancel it, oftentimes being charged for months for something I'm not even using. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. 
With Rocket Money, I can see all of my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, I can cancel it with a tap. I never have to get on the phone with customer service. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is take a picture of your bill, and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. It's definitely saved me money and now I can use that money to waste on things I do want. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. That's rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. Rakuten's Big Give Week is back with 15% cash back. It's a festival of savings with big cash back at hundreds of stores. Don't miss headliners like Canon, Fenty Beauty, and Dyson. I can't wait to shop for all of my summer fashion and beauty needs, and we'll definitely be checking out Ulta and Adidas. Rakuten really is the best way to shop. You can really save by stacking cash back on top of other deals. And during Big Give Week, the cash back is bigger than ever. It's the time to shop for everything you need for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Membership is free, and it's all happening May 6th to May 13th. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost on top of Big Give Week cashback rates, go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app today. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Rakuten is the shopping platform to save while shopping. So on March 1st, because baby Charles had been sick with a croupy cough, he was snugly dressed and tucked into bed. The window had been cracked open in the room even though it was kind of chilly because the warm was so the room was so warm and stuffy so it was just enough to let like a little fresh air in Betty the nanny turned the light off and checked his breathing one last time as he had been congested and later told Anne that his breathing seemed much better and he was on the road to recovery this was the last time anyone in the home would see him alive at 10.22, the Hopewell police received the call that Charles Jr. was missing. The police arrived shortly afterward and were shocked by the lack of any disturbance in the nursery. Nothing had appeared to be touched. The only thing they noticed was a light smudge on a trunk by the open window, which had a suitcase on top of that and other items stacked on top of the suitcase. If this was the entry point, the kidnapper would have had to leapt to leap over this pile to enter the nursery uh, and do so without disturbing anything in a pitch black room and possibly not even knowing that it was there when he went in the window. Even more unusual, he then did the same thing while carrying a toddler without disturbing anything or making even a sound. At the bottom of the window, investigators saw what appeared to be ladder imprints. The Lindbergh, I'm sorry, Lindbergh then took them to the yard to show them what he had discovered with his groundsmen. One investigator quickly realized how difficult the grounds would have been to navigate as well. It had recently rained a lot, so the yard was very muddy and planks of wood were just sort of strewn about all over the yard as sort of makeshift walkways. It was wild to them that a kidnapper navigated this in the dark without tripping on these planks. Then they came to Lindbergh's discovery, a three-piece sectional ladder about nine feet from the house. Lindbergh then called the state police at this time, the head of which was 
uh, I'm sorry, I said this wrong. Lindbergh then called the state police at this time, the head of which was H. Norman Schwarzkopf. Yes, the father of the other Norman Schwarzkopf, who you might remember from the first Gulf War. It's this guy. It's funny how all these assholes throughout history always <laughs> connected to another person. Yeah. It's like the power just keeps shifting down yeah. to their offspring. Yeah. Um, so this will be a key reason this investigation goes completely off the rails. Norman Schwarzkopf is a huge fanboy of Charles Lindbergh. And in a short time, Charles will all but be all but leading this investigation. The dad of the missing child. Wow. A finger expert, a fingerprint expert is dispatched to the scene. And it's at this point he finds an envelope that no one had seen up until this point. In that envelope is a ransom note. So basically the note demands that um, they get $50,000 in small bills, which is about $730,000 today or when this book was written for the boys return. And uh, they state that the delivery instructions will be transmitted in two to four days. Uh, It is sort of written in what appears to be broken English with lots of misspellings. We warn you for making any ding public or for notifying the police the child is in gut care, G-U-T-E. So uh, obviously this gets Charles's brain working because he's right. like, this Who is an immigrant. <laughs> right. Um, so it's not long before press arrive, just as Charles and police start doing a search party to cover the area. Almost no footprint evidence uh, is going to be usable because it's all destroyed at this point. The crime scene was just not protected at all. By noon the next day, over 400 reporters are on the scene just trampling over everything. Fuck. So they're at a farmhouse, just to be clear. They're like, literally, there's tons of land, open land around them. So all of this stuff is just trampled on by all these reporters. The first big break comes from a neighbor named Ben Lupica. He had seen an unknown Dodge sedan driving the day before with two stacked ladders in the front seat, uh, and one of the ladders was a match for what was found in the yard. Investigators immediately are on the lookout now for this vehicle. While parents are often the first to kind of be eliminated as suspects, even just as a formality, this was not the case with the Lindberghs. Most of these investigators, like the rest of the country, treated him like a hero, someone who would never do anything suspect. And this was really heightened when the state police came on board. As I mentioned, they were led by Schwarzkopf, who was a fanboy and really incompetent. He basically got the job because his friend was governor at the time. So he had zero experience as a criminal investigator. And a lot of legit investigators were constantly bitching to the press. They thought it was outrageous um, that this guy, Schwarzkopf, was charged with running what was probably at this point, the crime of the century and really high profile as well. Lindbergh had them swear, the police swear, not to reveal that a ransom note had had been received. And then the very next day, he went to the press uh, himself about it. What? Yeah. So he's just pulling all this shit and the cops are listening to everything he tells them. But it's like, he's not in charge. Yeah. Uh, so he goes to the New York Times He tells them that he is prepared to pay the $50,000 ransom demand. The reporter asked Lindbergh for a recent photograph of the missing child. Uh, And on the March 3rd edition of the New York Times, they run a a headline, Lindbergh hopeful is ready to make ransom, ready to ransom son, nation's greatest hunt for kidnappers pushed 
All clues thus far futile. Country is shocked. Then they post a photo of little Charles um, seated in a chair with the caption, picture of his missing son given to us yesterday by Colonel Lindbergh to help in the search. Um, so <laughs> the country is out for blood at this point because who could have harmed this golden curled angel? Now, here's an interesting thing. The picture he gives them is a year old. What? It's with Charles's golden curls still intact. Uh, it is also obviously, we all know that he cut the hair, so right. it doesn't look like him anymore. Right. And he's a year younger. And part of the reason he did this because he felt like his child was too tall for his age. Oh so he told God. them also that the child was four inches shorter than he was. So he lied about everything because he was embarrassed about his child for whatever reason uh, that but it's like you're tall also. So right. maybe like little kids can also be tall for their age. Like it doesn't mean anything uh, just like weird shit. Cause it's like very important to have accurate information, obviously in a circumstance like this. While previously press shy, now the Lindberghs were obviously very much relying on the press in order to get the word out to the kidnappers. They were 100% willing to give the ransom for the safe return of Charles Jr. No questions asked. Anne even gave her first interview, letting it slip that the child had health issues, which infuriates her husband. Lindbergh really took control of the investigation at this point. The headquarters was in his garage, and he threatened to shoot any cop who pursued leads without his permission. But what he couldn't control was the doubts of other investigators and reporters who had questions. One of the first pieces of questionable evidence was the latter footprint. These did not seem deep enough on, on a soft ground. If a grown man had stood on it, it probably would have sunk deeper. So speculation was that this was a decoy to avoid the look of an inside job. While people were coming to Schwarzkopf with these misgivings, he only relied on Lindbergh's theories and opinions. And guess what? They were xenophobic. He, um, he was convinced that it only a gang of hardened and unfeeling immigrants could have pulled off such a dastardly deed. So he didn't want to hear anything uh, outside of that. An early BAU wannabe, though, thought differently. Mm. <laughs> so we have an early wannabe profiler before yeah. it was a thing. Yeah. This person speculated that the kidnapper was an exhibitionist whose huge ego got off on the worldwide attention the crime would receive. That sounds oh. very BAU to me. Yeah. Another bizarre thing happens after the release of the initial pick. They release a photo of how he might appear if kidnappers tried to camouflage him by cutting his hair, but it's just a picture of how he actually looked when he got kidnapped. Oh my God. Isn't that crazy? So clearly someone was like, we should probably show what he really looks like. Right. To, in order to find him. But it's an actual, so this is the, the press at this point is sparing the feelings and the ego of Lindbergh. I don't even know that they know. Because oh. remember, this child is very protected and never seen. Right. So, but the family perpetrates this lie, basically. Yeah. And maybe the mom was like, we got to show them what they really look like. And Charles was like, I know what we'll do. We'll pretend this is like, you know, how you have those missing children. It's yes. like, here's how they look at 12. Right. So that's basically what they did, but with a real picture of how he looked. They then admit to his haircut. They next do admit, oh, yeah, he did get his haircut. Um, you know, but by that point, it's too late. They kind of like, you know, 
you know, the, the story breaks. That's what everyone looks for. Once you correct something, the correction never gets the attention as the original uh, right. story does. Right. So the world is still looking for a curly blonde hair uh, boy who was four inches shorter than Lindbergh than he was in real life. Much like internet sleuths of uh, today, there are a ton of amateur sleuths on this case as well. And they would actually report things they found to investigators that seemed relevant and they would just never hear back. The press also begins publishing scathing critiques of the investigation. And more and more people are really like, this stinks of an inside job. Whether accurate or not, Charles' controlling uh, and secretive nature just leads to more speculation. On March 6th, a new ransom letter arrives by mail to the Lindbergh home. This letter is postmarked uh, from Brooklyn, and it carries a perforated red and blue mark that the kidnappers say will sort of indicate it is from the real uh, kidnappers. The ransom has now been raised to $70,000. A third postmark comes from Brooklyn uh, that includes the secret marks, and this arrives in the attorney Henry Breckenridge's mail. The note says that Lindbergh's told the Lindberghs that John Condon should be the intermediary between the Lindberghs and the kidnappers, and they requested notification in a newspaper that the third note had been received. Instructions uh, specified the size of the box the money should come in and warned the family not to contact the police. So who is John Condon? He's just a well-known Bronx personality. What? (laughs) That's all he is. Like, I couldn't find, like, he doesn't have, he's just, like, was kind of famous in the Bronx yeah. for whatever reason. Oh, John Condon. Yeah. You know, uh, he, he did sort of make a little bit of a mark in this case by offering a thousand dollars. If the kidnapper would turn the child over to a Catholic priest, which doesn't seem like the best plan. Just <laughs> Jesus, Desi. Uh, and he eventually becomes involved in this case based on the fact that the kidnappers bring him into it because uh, because he, I guess, was well known for this this one offer. He eventually gets a letter reportedly written by the kidnappers and it authorizes him to be this intermediary. Lindbergh agrees to the terms and they began the ransom process by placing a classified ad in the New York American reading, Money is Ready, Jaffsy, which is Condon's nickname. He then waits for further instructions. A meeting between Jaffsey and the kidnappers is eventually scheduled for late one evening at the Woodlawn Cemetery in the Bronx. According to Condon, the man sounded foreign but stayed in the shadows during their initial conversation. He said the man's name was John, and he said that he was a, this guy said that he was a Scandinavian sailor part of a gang of three men and two women. The baby was being held on a boat unharmed and would be returned only for ransom. When John Condon expressed doubt that John actually had the baby, he promised some proof. The kidnapper would soon return the baby's sleeping suit. On March 16th, John Condon receives a toddler sleeping suit by mail and a seventh ransom note. Lindbergh identifies the sleeping suit as belonging to the child, and then Condon places a new ad in Home News. Money is ready, no cops, no secret service. I come alone long, alone like last time. On April 1st, he receives a letter saying it's time for the ransom to be delivered. The ransom gets packaged in a wooden box that is custom made in hopes that it could later be identified. The money includes a number of gold certificates. Um, since those were about to be withdrawn from circulation, it was hoped that they would sort of draw attention when someone tried to use them. And the bills were not marked but their serial numbers were recorded. On April 2nd, 
John Conan is given a note by another intermediary, intermediary uh, who is a cab driver, and it told, tells him to meet John. Um, he's like, we have only been able to raise $50,000. The man accepts the money and gives Condon a note saying that the child is in the care of two women who are innocent. They then let him leave with no guarantee he has given them accurate information. Wow. By the way, this guy's called, it starts to be known as Cemetery John. <laughs> John Condon does? No, the other John the is Cemetery who, John. The guy who um, the, gave the, the sleeping the, suit? Yes. So guess what? He didn't give them accurate information. He literally just took the $50,000 and there was no baby or accurate information leading to where he was. So this guy was just trying to get them. Yes. <laughs> oh my God. And they fucking gave him the money what without this? any proof that the child was alive or anything. What about the sleeping suit? Was that I real? I don't know. I, it could. I mean, I'm guessing there was probably a few patterns right. of sleeping suits and maybe it just looked similar. Like, right. So... They would end up spending tens of thousand dollars on ransoms, ransoms without ever seeing the child. People were just like, let's get on the grift. Right. Uh, and they kept doing it. Oh, my God. When the fr- press found out about Cemetery John, they like roasted John Condon like mercilessly in the press. Like, you idiot. You fucking dumbass. Because it's like, who is this guy? Yeah. Like, they just put this Bronx personality in this position of power for like the biggest case in the world. Right. It's truly like slapstick almost like, yeah, it's crazy. The more this went on, the more strange theories began popping up. One reporter who was really skeptical from the start, believed this was a plan between Lindbergh and Herbert Hoover, who Lindbergh, Herbert uh, Hoover, who we all know from Annie. Yeah. <laughs> that he sucked, <laughs> that he sucked. But of course, Lindbergh loved him. And of course he did. Of course he did. And he thought it was a scheme between those two to avoid bad press about the economic disaster <laughs> that the country was in. So the child was alive and well and in hiding. And they're just kind of like, that'll that'll keep people's mind <laughs> off of their poverty and like right. lack of food. So Lindbergh uh, eventually drops Conjun and begins working with another man named John Curtis because everyone's named John in Everyone. 1930. <laughs> There's a lot of Johns. Uh, he becomes the new intermediary uh, between the, you know, the Lindberghs and this supposed gang of kidnappers. But Curtis quickly becomes disturbed by Charles's behavior, especially his desire to get it all settled. Like he's just like wants to get it over with. And his insistence that the kidnappers uh, know that he'll protect their identities. Cause that's always apart from Lindbergh. He's like, don't worry, we're not going to tell anyone your secret safe with me. Just give me the child back. And he as a father is kind of like, I want to fucking kill them or yeah. like whatever, even yeah. if it's not practical. Um, so, so he doesn't seem particularly distraught as well, according to this guy. And he often would suggest to John Curtis that they should play cards or something, anything to not have to think about the kidnapping, what? like just to get it. But just the way he framed it was kind of like, uh, cause they would go on these flying trips to find, to try to find the child. Oh, like this wow. is months of them doing all these wild goose chases and Charles just kind of like, Oh, I'm sick. Like I'm sick of it. Like I'm so <laughs> bored of the kidnapping on May 12th. Curtis receives an urgent call from Schwarzkopf. Charles and Curtis are then informed that, um, where they were at that point was just another false lead. 
Uh, there was no exchange that would ever result in the return of Charles Jr. And that's because his body was found. Oh, no. Earlier that day, a delivery truck driver pulled to the side of the road to take a piss. Like, literally, that's what he was doing. About 4.5 miles south of the Lindbergh home. It's there that he discovers the body of a toddler. The skull is fractured. The body is decomposed. And there's evidence of scavenging by animals. There's also evidence of an attempt at a hasty burial. The national search was over and the national mourning began. But this case gets more and more wild. So that's where we're going to end. We'll be back next week with what happens, the person who finally gets arrested, and then more of the conspiracies of what actually might have went down. Wow. So, yeah. Desi, great job. We'll be back next week at our regularly scheduled time. Yeah. And we'll be back in a few days for our mini episode. Bye. Bye. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.